Today's Old Testament reading is taken from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is taken from 1 John Chapter 3, verses 11 to 24. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters. If the world hates you, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and receive from him anything we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. 
The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we are, or this afternoon, excuse me, we are going to do something a bit different in our service. We are going to have two preachers. And so we don't stay all afternoon. We're going to share the time. Thank you. Um, Last week, remember, we talked from the verses just prior to this in 1 John. And the concept there that John was communicating to each and every one of us is we cannot continue as Christians, as believers, as those who know God in their heart, we will not be able to continue a practice of sinning. That did not mean that we will not sin. That it certainly can happen. But then John said in chapter 2, I write this to you that you not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who gave himself as a propitiation for our sin and the sin of the whole world. So he's not talking about being perfect, but what he's talking about or writing about to us is that when we have God living in us, God's Spirit will begin then to work in us in such a way, a practice, or one way that I found that the word had been translated that helped me, if we begin to build a pathway that we can see ourselves repeating and going the same direction again and again that is not of God, God excuse me, we'll we'll address this. And so that was last week. But now this week we're going to talk about and read these verses about loving one another. And uh, this is something also that John says will be a characteristic of all those who follow God and know Christ in their life. So Nathan, could you explain to us what this is all about? Good afternoon, everyone. So our passage today flows, like Dennis said, pretty much directly from last week's. Um, Last week, Dennis ended the sermon talking about the children of God and the children of the devil. And the passage stated that the children of the devil will not do what is right, and they will not love their brothers and their sisters. And so this passage continues with that theme, um, continues with the children or family topic going into the story of Cain and Abel, who were brothers, children of Adam and Eve. Cain, it says, was from the evil one, while Abel, it says, was righteous, and he was from the family of God. And so in the previous verses, in verse 11, right here that we're reading today, it says that we know we are children of God if we do what is right, and if we love one another. So being a child of God involves opposite actions um, in Scripture than being a child of the devil. And so we'll continue on to verse 12, and I'll read that one more time. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. 
So here in this section, John is introducing the concept that our hearts and our actions are so intertwined that the two cannot be separated. This is what we're going to focus on um, in this section. He says, Cain murdered Abel because Cain's deeds were evil, and Abel's deeds or actions were righteous. We might expect John to say, Cain murdered Abel because he was jealous, or Cain murdered Abel because he was angry. We expect the reason he gives to be a condition of his heart, right? But the way that John says it here, actually, shows us that the action, as well as the condition of the heart, are inseparable. They're one in the same. Cain murdered Abel because his deeds, his actions, it says, were evil, which in necessity meant that his heart, his heart condition, was evil as well. So let's go back to to the story of Cain and Abel, um, like we read earlier. Cain is the firstborn of Adam and Eve. Abel is the second. Both brothers go and offer sacrifices to God. Um, Cain's is rejected by God, while Abel's is accepted by God. It seems that Abel offered the best of his flock to God, while Cain did not offer his best to God. And so let me reread Genesis uh, 4, 5 through 8 again. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Here in Genesis, God seems to give the the same picture that he does in 1 John. It says Cain was very angry and his face was downcast, a condition of his heart at that moment. But God says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right? Sin is crouching at your door. God directly links Cain's actions to what is actually in his heart. God says if he does what is right, he's accepted. And if Cain's actions are right, then his heart will be right too. They can't be disconnected. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to run through verse 13. It says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Just like Cain hated Abel, a child of the devil, hated a child of God, the world will hate followers of Christ. Those in the world not of God may hate those in the world of God. And Christians should expect this. It's part of the normal Christian life, is what it's saying. And so now moving on, our next verse reads, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now, this statement, again, further cements this connection of action and heart. So I'm going to pull a a Dennis right now. But we know we have moved from here, death, to here, life, if we love our brothers and our sisters. If we are here in life, we are abiding with, remaining with God. Right? And in John 15, God says, only those abiding with him, abiding in the vine, can actually bear fruit. 
But if we don't love, we're over here in death, and we're abiding there. We are remaining there. And love is not just a heart feeling. Um, It is clearly an action. Just a few verses later, um, John is going to say, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So love necessarily, it must be an action. So if we love one another in action and in heart, we know we have moved from here, death, to over here, life. But those who do not love in action and in heart are here abiding in death. And so now finally, John is going to come full circle with this idea and flip this concept back around. He started with our actions show our heart condition with Cain and Abel. And now he's going to say our heart condition is the exact same as our actions. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John literally equates hating your brother or sister with murder. When you hate them, you're guilty of murder. It's the same thing. The heart condition of hate is the same as the action of murder. And John seems to be invoking Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he equates both anger and murder as being subject to judgment. Heart and action, they cannot be separated. And when we do separate them, right, which we do all the time, we're lying to ourselves. We're we're living in a fantasy world that, that when we think the two can be separated or if we separate them in our minds. We're missing out on what reality is when we do that. And so practically speaking, this can bring us to a helpful, if not a little bit of a frightening conclusion. It seems that our hearts and our heart condition can be seen or glimpsed by the way we live our lives, by what actions we do. And so I would encourage you all this week, um, take a little bit of time and look, take an honest look at your life. So do this yourself or have a spouse or a friend help you out with it. If you honestly look at your life, so your daily, your weekly, your your monthly life, what does it say about your heart? If you look at your patterns and your habits and your addictions, what does it say? If you're a follower of Christ, ask yourself, do my actions that I do show a heart that's actually devoted to God? And if you're maybe not a Christian, ask yourself, what do my actions show that I'm living for? And is that thing worth living for? Is that what I want to be living for in my life? So now to transition here, like we talked about before, when we don't love, we abide in death over here. But when we do love, we abide in God, in life. And so Dennis... What does it practically look like for God's love to abide in us? I find that what you shared is somewhat frightening, don't you?
Sorry about that. Um, I find what he just shared with us actually a bit almost shaking. That God has provided a window that you and I can look through to see how our soul, our heart, is doing. We are not born again or saved or have a commitment with God by being good or doing a lot of good things. But if we say we have a relationship with God and God forgives us, takes away our guilt and comes and lives inside of us, we must expect that our lives become more and more godly. And we can look at what we do and then we have to equate it with God himself. Because that's the next thing John goes on and he says, now we know love. He said we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In other words, what he's moving here is he's saying to them, the practical thing about loving is let's set the standard. And the standard is Jesus Christ. Because I would come from the time I was little. And I had a younger brother, Charles, and I had an older brother, Jim. And I would, Jim, and then run back to mom. Oh, I'm such a nice boy. And there were seven years between my older brother and me, and she just really loved me a lot. It reminds me, isn't it? Sometimes we as Christians use the wrong standard for the way we love one another. I'm not as bad as him. Oh, I'm much better than my neighbor. I'm not, uh, certainly not like that evil person in history. But what he says here, the standard to which we are called is that of Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. Oh, and if you ever want to talk about an unfair gift, God himself offering his life in the person of Jesus Christ for you and me. It's because he loved us. But then John, just to help us not get lost up there and leave it there, he says this in verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Wow. Like another searching question at the end of that verse. But you see, John takes it then from this example of Jesus as the example with which we must compare ourselves. And then he says, but the reality is, that's not where most of us live. Probably if we went around and took a poll and asked, would you be prepared to give your life rather than to not deny Jesus? Most of us would probably say, well, of course we think we would. But then John says, well, let's bring it to day-by-day reality. If we see that our brother has a need, he has this, a need, and we have an abundance of worldly goods, why don't we take what we have and meet this need? This morning I read an article from a friend who is Moldovan. And he said, for the first time, he said, I am the most proud of myself or my nation today. And I'm not trying to make a national thing out of this, but he said, there was a need And he said, we went and took aid to the border all day yesterday. And then he said, I went to the bakers and the bakers said, tomorrow we don't work. He said, I need bread. And he said, then they said, what are you going to use it for? And they said, for the people coming. 
And he said they went, and they went to Baker, to Baker, to Baker, and they put it all together and filled his car with bread and meat that he could go again. And he said, I was never more proud that I was who I was. Now, I think what Jesus is saying here is very simply this, that let's bring this to a real point of life. And he says, if anyone sees his brother. So we, it's the, and actually here, what we can't see in English and in the original, John changes words, words that get the emphasis. Normally in, in the, the words he'll use for heart as it goes on, usually the heart is, 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 is talking about the cardio. And, and, and that's where he says, that's what you got to love. But in this one, he changes the word and he uses that word, which we would call, remember the old English we talked about before, from the bowels. Remember there's that word in the Old Testament, I love, Jesus loves us from the bowels. And I often in premarital counseling will ask people, can you tell your spouse to be that? But what he meant is, because the Hebrews understood the center of our emotion, of where we feel, the source of things like mercy and grace and love. You see, when you hurt, you do not hurt here when someone dies. You hurt here. It's the very center of emotion and from which the very center that mercy and love can grow. And John uses that word. And he says, how can one close that and that one is, he literally locks it. Man nimmt der Schlüssel, steckt in den Schloss und schließt es zu. He takes the key and puts it in the lock and closes it. It's a conscientious closing of the heart. So he says, if you see this and you have this and you consciously close your heart, he asks the question, how then? And the love of God be dwelling in that heart? A searching question. Because then he goes on to say, of course, we must love not just in words, but in deed and truth. Now, Nathan, how do we continue in that truth? Yeah, so we'll move on to, to verses 19 and 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So by what shall we know we are of the truth? And how is our heart reassured before God? I believe it's saying that if we love in deed and in truth, as it says in verse 18 then by this we will know we're of the truth, we're of God. Our hearts will be reassured. We won't worry that we're living or abiding in death, but we'll be sure that we're living and abiding in life. And again, right, this goes back to the unity of action in heart. If our actions are truly loving, we will know we're abiding with God. If we're truly abiding with God, that means we have a right heart condition. And so the two are intricately tied together again. But what does verse 20 mean then? For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. This verse is a bit confusing, but I, I think it can come down to two different things that are true. 
our heart condemns us or convicts us, is another translation, could either, could either mean we feel conviction in our heart of a specific sin, or it could mean our heart just in general feels condemned. And I think there's a big difference between these two things, a specific conviction or a, a general conviction of, of your heart and of your life. Firstly, when we feel our heart condemns or convicts us about a specific sin, that's probably the Holy Spirit convicting us. If I judge my spouse or my friend and my heart feels convicted about that specific instance, it's probably a conviction from God. When we sin as followers of Christ, right, we, sh- we should feel conviction. And if we ignore that conviction, then we're ignoring God. Sometimes, of course, it's more pleasant for us to try and pretend that conviction doesn't exist or to shove it down, to not deal with it. Sometimes it takes, yeah, a difficult conversation or difficult circumstances for us to finally um, come, to, come to face that conviction. And the truth is, God wants us to face our convictions, right? And to go to him, to apologize to him, and to seek him again. But God has really wonderful news for us here when we do feel convicted. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. If you have sinned, and your heart feels conviction about that sin, God is greater than your sin and your heart. As followers of Jesus, Jesus has forgiven us our sins, right? He's wiped our slate clean, and he presents us before the Father as blameless, as perfect. Even though he knows everything, everything you've ever done wrong and everything you will ever do wrong, he's chosen to love you and to forgive you. That's great news. Now, moving to the second way this could be understood, sometimes we can just feel general condemnation. It's not a clear conviction of something. It's, it's just like a fuzzy, a fuzzy condemnation of your heart. Maybe your heart feels worthless, or you feel that life is pointless, or you think that you're too big of a sinner for God to, to ever completely forgive you. There can be this heavy weight in us that just drags us down, seemingly for no reason. In the verse right before this, it says how we know we are of God if we're walking with God, right? If we're loving in truth, and indeed, we know that. And sometimes, even if we know that we're right with God, we can feel this horrible condemnation in our heart that we don't understand and we don't know why we have it. And and often, I really don't think this type of condemnation is of the Spirit. The Spirit brings knowledge and truth and, and specific conviction to us not a blurry confusion. And so I think this type of condemnation, a condemnation that's that's not from God, can be from ourselves, from mental illness, or from the devil, or from demons oppressing us. And when we feel this type of condemnation in our heart, one that's based on lies, not on the truth, we can hang on to the wonderful fact that God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. God is greater than that feeling of condemnation. As a follower of Christ, God is there with you, whether you're feeling him in the moment or not. If you know him, you're his child. That's your identity. It's actually a fact of life. Whether you feel it in your heart 
at that moment or not. And this is the true reality that we live in. God knows everything, right? And he says this is true. That's amazing. Honestly, I feel like I've had this experience um, lots of times. And j- even just two weeks ago, I, I've, I really had this, this intense feeling of condemnation. For four or five days, I just couldn't shake the feeling in my heart that I'm a complete failure and a complete waste of space. Um, yeah, the feeling in my heart that was that I was worthless, that my life was meaningless, that, that nothing I did or tried to do would matter. And I, I felt condemned. I would get up in the morning and have this feeling, come to work with this feeling, talk to other people um, with this feeling just aching and sitting in my gut. And I would go, to have, go, to, go home and go to bed with that same feeling. And I knew that this feeling wasn't the truth, but it was still extremely hard to, to walk through the day and to go through the day with that just pulling and dragging me down. But the thing is, it wasn't reality. I knew in my head that God was greater than my feelings. I knew that he was my father and that I was his child and that he loves me so much. That was the truth. That was reality, despite my feelings. And I just had to hang on to those, those truths as best as I could each day. I'm sure many of you have had similar or much, much worse experiences of this Right? There, there's Christians who struggle with, with this their entire lives. And it's not easy at all. It's extremely difficult. But these words God gives us through John are extremely encouraging and are really an anchor for us when, when we're walking in times like this. God is greater than our hearts. The truth is that as a follower of Christ, no matter what, God loves you and you are his child. And he's there for you even if it doesn't feel like it in the moment. Now, Dennis, if we know God is greater, he's greater than our hearts, what other implications does this have? How else will this affect our lives? Well, the verses that we have to conclude these passage, this passage this morning takes us through a series of things that should really encourage us. But that, what Nathan just shared with us, is incredibly important. If God's Holy Spirit is convicting us of something, it is like a spotlight. God is never nebulous. God is exact. It will be, Dennis, this is wrong. You need to repent. If it's just a nebulous weight, oh no, oh no, often that is not of God. But here he gives us things that are quite encouraging to us. If we look there beginning in verse 22, And goes on, he says, Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, so if we know that God is pleased with us, he says we have confidence before God. And that confidence, that sense of, I can look at my life and I realize that it's different. It may not be perfect, but it's different because God is at work in me. That will then lead as I pray, I will come to God and I will pray and ask according to what God desires, his will. It's the kind of opposite totally of what James in chapter 4, verse 3 says, you know, you ask and you receive not, or you pray and nothing happens, because we ask amiss, because we ask after our own desires, James says. Here he's saying, because God 
the person of Jesus is controlling our hearts and lives, God is living in us, then as we pray in this sense, we have confidence because we know we're praying as God would have us to pray. It's an incredible idea. And then he goes on and says, not only that, but because we keep his commandments, and when we do that, we're pleasing him. We can look at life and say, I, I used to not want to do this. And now I, I enjoy obeying God. And I find if I follow God, then God becomes more real to me. And what we found difficult before, we found a joy, we find a joy because he does this. Then he goes on and says, and these are the commandment, or this is the commandment that we believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, we must come to the point where we understand fully there is salvation in no other name than Jesus Christ. It's not being good. It's not being nice. It's not even coming to church on Sunday morning that gives us eternal life. It is belief that when Jesus died on the cross, he took my place. And we receive forgiveness for that. But then God goes even further. He wants to make us his child and adopt us into his family. We believe in the name of Jesus Christ, his son. And then secondly, he says, because the work of God in us is going to mean we're going to reach out and love one another. That's one of the absolute specialties and beauties of the family of God. Then he goes on and says that whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. Isn't that an amazing idea? What is the advantage if I do this? Well, we abide in God. Can you imagine that? We, you, me, us, in God. But then he goes further and he says, and not only that, but then we begin to realize God is in us. This is the most exciting things about eternal life is God comes in. You see, eternal life is not just living a never-ending time frame. Eternal life is the forgiveness of Christ, but then God comes and lives inside we share the very eternal life of God. And then he goes on to finish and he says, and how do we know that he abides in us? By the spirit he puts in us. Remember Romans 8? And when we move from being children of evil to the children of God, we're forgiven, we're cleansed. God puts his spirit in us whereby our spirit cries out, Abba, Father, and you probably noticed as we went through these verses that John uses the word know. You can know four times. In verse 14 he says, you can know that you will pass from death to life. Today each one of us can know that we have. Then he goes on and says, you can know what love is in verse 16. The example, the, the level to which we are to love one another is Jesus Christ. He's the example. And when we come and say, well, how in the world can I love him or her? I don't even like them. God didn't say you must like them. He said you must love them. And often what we find as we allow the love of God to function in our lives, then we love them. You see, the world doesn't hate us because we're not nice. 
The world hates us because if they see the very love of God transforming us, they don't know what to do with it. And it's frustrating. And frustration leads to jealousy, leads to anger. Where Jesus says they're not hating you, they're hating me. And then he uses in verse 19, he says, we can know that we are of the truth. When we see the works of God changing our lives, we can know it's true. And then finally he says in verse 24, and we can know that God is abiding in us because of the Spirit of God He places within us. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, He took all of our sin. And we come to Him and we repent in that price that He pays. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It counts for us. And when we celebrate in a few weeks the day of Easter, when God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and all of the spiritual world, all of the physical world, had seen and can testify to the fact that God the Father has accepted the sacrifice of God the Son for you and me. But then it even goes further. And the very last confirmation of that is when Jesus says, as I go to the Father, it is good, because when I go, I will send another comforter, the Holy Spirit, to you. And on the day that the church was born, it says he poured out the Spirit of God. And there we find Romans 8 true, and he puts his Spirit in us. The very last confirmation that God the Father has accepted the sacrifice of God the Son is the very truth that you have God the Spirit living in you as a child of God. And old John says, that's good. It's amazing. And that is what God has prepared for each and every one of us that we have confidence as we come to God. So I'm just going to pray, and in a few moments we're going to have communion together. Communion is a special time. It's not a time to stay away from God. If there's something that's between you and God, as we've been speaking today, and God's Spirit has identified that, this is the moment then to bring that to God and ask for his cleansing and his forgiveness. Not to run away, but to come to him and experience the reality of God abiding in us and changing us from the inside out. I'm going to pray, and then Nathan will come and read the liturgy for communion. Father, thank you that we come to you today and we can worship you because you are God and you are the King. You are the one who lives inside of us. And Lord, we know as we look in our lives, we wonder how in the world does that happen and possible. But it's true. And we can look at our lives and we see the progression, the difference. We are not like we were six months ago, two years ago. We're not perfect, but God, you are at work. And therefore, we thank you and worship you. And now we ask in Jesus' name that you guide us to the rest of this service. Continue to speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.